This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to today's Property Patter. My name is Emma Humphreys and I'm joined by Megan Davies of our Real Estate Disputes team and Ben Faulkner of Wilberforce Chambers to talk about the role of expert evidence in property cases, including some key tips on what to bear in mind when preparing and delivering expert evidence. Now, let's start with some basics, I think. Um, when we talk about expert evidence, um, Ben, perhaps you would explain to our listeners, how is that different to witness or factual evidence? What would one get expert evidence on? Sure. I mean, this, this might sound very noddy, um, but I think it is actually often quite helpful to remind ourselves of first principles because you get stuck into a case and you cite them and that can go disastrously wrong. So let's, let's really strip this back. In court, matters of fact are proven by factual witness evidence and documents. Expert evidence is needed where the court needs someone to help interpret those facts or to exercise a degree of professional judgment that the court can't do itself. So accountants might be taking some facts, whatever the um, income is or whatever, and do some number crunching, which the court can't do. You might have someone carrying out a DNA test, which requires professional skills, which the court can't do. Now, taking, for example, valuation evidence, which I think can be an example throughout our, our, our talk today, that's often called an art, not a science. It involves interpreting the facts, say the facts about comparable transactions, and then you exercise professional judgment, for example, in deciding what adjustments to comparables to make or what the most useful or most reliable comparables are. But it can get a bit more complicated than that and things can get a bit murky. Valuation evidence will often give factual evidence. The clearest example of that is when a valuer goes into a property and measures it in order to carry out either a net internal area or a zoning um, analysis or whatever. That's facts. Comparables can need quite special attention here when we're talking about facts because the details of comparables are strictly matters of fact. What was agreed in that transaction and why? So they ought therefore to be proved by reference to disclosed documents and if necessary, calling the parties to the transaction or their agents as witnesses. Now you never really see that happen, but technically that's how they would be proved. Now, as a matter of practice, experts on either side generally agree the details of the comparables so that there's need for them to be proved. But quite often there are still factual issues because the information you get from the agents involved in that particular transaction is patchy. What was the correct floor area? What was the configuration of the unit? Was the lease inside or out the app, et cetera? You just might not know. So in such a case, we always need to be thinking about evidence of these matters. The expert can't rely upon phone calls they've had. That's just hearsay, and that is the expert um, uh, trying to look for evidence without actually properly being able to prove it. So get it in writing. 
create a paper trail of all of the factual investigations that were carried out. And if a comparable really is important and contentious, and the parties to that transaction are being tight-lipped, it might be necessary for the expert to contact the lawyers to see if an application for disclosure can be made or something else can be done to try and get some more of the transaction detail. So this just all goes to show that expertise is uh, obviously very important, but it is founded upon facts and often the line between what is fact and what is opinion or expert evidence can be quite difficult to identify and we need, really do need to try and be strict as we can in our own minds when giving evidence. Yeah, that's very interesting, Ben. It's a good point. You know, we start with basics thinking they're basics, but actually then it becomes clear they're more complicated than you think um, and certainly need some thought. Um, one of the other areas I think worth talking about, which again, sort of, again, sounds basic, but actually when you delve into them, um, perhaps not so much, is of course experts' duties. Um, we could give a long list of those. Um, I don't suggest we do that, but Megan, perhaps you could touch on some of the key duties for experts that they need to bear in mind. So experts' duties in court proceedings are set out in the civil procedure rules, specifically in part 35 and its practice direction, which the expert should be familiar with. And an expert's primary duty is to assist the court, so assist the judge in deciding the case. And this duty overrides any duty the expert may owe to the party instructing them. And this, of course, sounds quite counterintuitive when, when you're instructed by, by a party to, um, to act on their behalf. And so you can see how this can lead to tensions with the instructing party, potentially. And because of this duty, it's very important for experts to present an unbiased opinion on matters within their expertise and consider all the material facts, not leave anything out that might... Um, that might skew their evidence in, in favour of their instructing party. And experts are also expected to cooperate with each other and try to narrow the issues between them. So, for example, in unopposed lease renewal proceedings, you'll see in the standard directions that the valuers are supposed to meet for this purpose, to narrow the issues and then prepare a joint statement. And the risk of not complying with these duties is that either the expert's evidence can be rejected by the court or there can be cost sanctions imposed against the party whose expert didn't comply with the duties. So it's really important. It's a really important duty to bear in mind, um, both by the party instructing the expert and by the expert. Yes, and as you say, it can feel counterintuitive, but it's that overriding thing, isn't it, about the duty to the court. Um, and, and experts need to care, you know, bear all of that in mind. Um, and of course, as well as th those duties in the CPR, experts may also be bound by their own professional codes. Yes, that's right. So, for example, the, um, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, RICS, has issued its own guidance note for surveyors acting as expert witnesses. And there's also specific guidance on particular types of claims like dilapidations, the electronic communications code, for example, and surveyors should, of course, also consult those be before they prepare their evidence. And of course, in property litigation matters, we 
deal with experts on a range of issues. You know, we have them in lease renewals, um, and Ben and I have spoken about that before. Um, rights of light, of course, dilapidations, as you've just mentioned, Megan. Um, in your experience, perhaps you could give our listeners some pointers on what does good expert evidence include? Um, what should it look like? And perhaps also, just as important, um, you, you know, what are the don'ts? Um, ben, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I thought of probably by five top tips um, for expert evidence. And the first of them really does spring straight off what Megan was saying just now, which is to remember that your role as an expert is to give your honestly held view. It gets murky and it gets complicated. And the particular reason for that is because experts often act as advisors before they start giving their expert report to the court. And in fact, in valuation matters, experts often act as advocates as well in rental arbitrations where they actually do the arguing. And what's more, experts as part of their role as advising or whatever at early stages will often get involved in the negotiations with the other side's expert. So in those circumstances, it's completely understandable that an expert views themselves as very much in the camp of their client. But the expert has, if the expert is going to give expert evidence to the court, they have an overriding duty to the court not to do that, not to be in one of the party's camps, um, not to argue the case, but instead to give their honest opinion. Um, so that means no arguing points, no inflating or deflating the rent so that it can be given away in neg negotiations. Um, and if you don't follow this really important rule, well, first, you'll be in breach of part 35, CPR part 35, and whatever other regulatory obligations and guidance there might be. But um, in addition, you might get caught out. And this can really cause a problem in court because the whole credibility of the expert's evidence can be undermined. It is our favorite way, our number one way as barristers to attack an expert in court is to say that they have descended into argument, they are not being impartial. And it happens. So recently, um, uh, there's a case called S. Francis. Um, uh, people listening might recognise that because that was a case which went to the Supreme Court uh, some years ago, and I was lucky to have a slice of that. Um, but that's come back to the county court for the lease renewal. And in that case, the landlord's expert report was highly selective and omitted evidence from his own firm's market report as to the state of the market and was found to have groundlessly exaggerated um, some interest in a particular unit that his firm had quitted. Um, and so he was found to be partial and unbalanced. And the result was that in a large respect, his evidence was put to one side. And it's not just that case. You see it in other cases as well. So that causes huge problems for your client because um, obviously your evidence is now called into question, but also no one wants their professional integrity questioned in a, a judgment. So that is my number one top tip. You have to think, if I were giving this report for the other side, would I be saying the same? And if not, 
then something needs to change about your report. Now, secondly, and related to that, an expert shouldn't step outside their experience. So sometimes legal issues will arise. Sometimes a report will depend upon particular facts which are uncertain, and there might be arguments in court about what the facts really are. And the best thing for an expert to do is stay well out of it. Don't express a view on either. It's not an expert's role to decide what the law is. It's not an expert's role to assess what the facts are. Um, that is for the court to do with the assistance of cross-examination and argument, etc. And the, the, what will happen is the expert will look like they are starting to argue the client's case. So instead, offer alternatives in an expert report. You can say, well, I'm not sure what the facts are. If, for example, this movement was made by the tenant, then I should be disregarding it. And I will do it that, this way. If, however, alternatively, this improvement wasn't made by the tenant, then I shouldn't be disregarding it. And here is my alternative valuation. So you do it that way. Or alternatively, if the legal principle is that I should be factoring in three months of rent free, then the result is this. But if the legal principle is that I shouldn't, then the result is different. And you set that out and then you leave it for other people to argue it and you look beautifully impartial and as it and and you are maintain you are only operating within your expertise. Um, my third point, and these ones are now much shorter, is it's really important to make sure a report is logical and internally consistent. This is one of my absolute favorite ways to attack an expert report in court. I mean, I will always go over the maths um, uh, and check it because often a little mathematical error is very easy to attack and, and it can be a thread by which you can pull and unpick a report. We like to use experts' own logic against them. Um, so watch out for that um, and really try and make sure it's system. Fourthly, if um, something is contentious or the subject of differing views, make sure all of the supporting evidence is exhibited to the report. It's much more powerful if we're able to see the evidential foundation or whatever foundation it is for your views uh, clearly. Quite often, experts, they're, they're brilliant experts. They are wonderful experts within their field. And it's easy, therefore, to assume that everyone else that they're explaining this to has a basic level of understanding. But really, um, that is often not the case. You're explaining quite foreign to a bunch of lawyers, including a judge. So basic building blocks and make sure that every stepping stone is there so that it's, uh, there's a sound evidential foundation for it. Uh, and fifthly, uh, and this is a particular bugbear of mine, make use of a joint statement. So what normally happens is the parties will do, the experts will do their expert reports, they then meet and then they prepare a joint statement. And it, off, quite often you see very bland joint statements which just uh, uh, copy what is in the report and just say, well, he says that and she says this, and there we go. But this meeting and the joint statement is a time for reflection. Perhaps you're now persuaded by the other expert or have reached a compromise. Well, you can record that in the statement. Or perhaps also you think that what the other expert has said in the report is absolute nonsense. Well, you can say why in the joint statement. There's no reason why the joint statement just has to be a bland repetition of what is said in the expert report. It's a living, breathing, evolving process. And lastly on that, as a result, make sure you budget time in your diary for dealing with a joint statement. It is a substantial, substantive bit of work 
it's not a five minute job and quite often people forget about that and it's done in far too much of a hurry. Thanks Ben, those are, those are some really good points. Um, there's not that much I, I really want to, to add to this. So from, um, from my experience as, as solicitors um, acting for, for parties and obviously instructing experts, we'll usually instruct experts for use in proceedings. And it's important that solicitors do this because then the expert will be fully briefed on what they're being asked to do and what their duties are. However, sometimes we only get involved when an expert has already been instructed, perhaps before proceedings were even anticipated. And I think as, as you, Ben, already um, mentioned, it's important to remember that there's a difference between being an expert that provides advice and assists in any pre-action negotiations and an expert that then needs to give expert evidence at court. And with the latter, it is so important for, for experts to be mindful of the duties they owe to the court, which are overriding and which we mentioned earlier. Because if you are giving expert evidence that's going to be used in proceedings, you need to be objective and independent when you form your expert opinion on the issue. And you cannot base your conclusion on wanting to please your client come what may, you need to look impartial. And this is a difficult position, of course, because it feels so counterintuitive. But as we've seen from um, the S. Francis case that Ben mentioned, an expert has to be able to back their expert opinion up with evidence and, and reasoning. So how did the expert arrive at that conclusion? Does it hold up? Is it well reasoned? If it doesn't hold up in court and there's any suggestion that there might be bias, then ultimately it may hinder rather than help the instructing party's case in any event. There was, um, Ben obviously mentioned S. S. Francis and that's the most recent case where we've seen experts being criticized, which, which is quite unusual, I think, to, um, to find in judgments. There was also another case a few years ago where a quantity surveyor was criticized because the judge found that he was biased towards his client, who it turned out was the expert's main client. And so the expert's independent was, independence was called into question and the judge decided to go with the other, the other side's expert evidence. So these cases are a really useful reminder of just how important it is for experts to comply with their overriding duty to the court. Ben also um, touched on this already, and this is something I come across when I'm dealing with, with experts and their, their reports. It's really, really important for them to be clear and easy to, to understand, because obviously with, with these types of witnesses, the clues in the name, they are they are experts in their fields and they can talk about their field all day long, often in, often in language that you and I just wouldn't understand. And the important thing to remember is that the judge hearing the evidence will most likely not be an expert in the field either and is therefore relying on the experts to show the judge exactly how they arrived at certain conclusions and make it as easy to understand and follow as possible. Well, thanks for that both. I mean, uh, there's a lot to digest there and uh, all very useful. Um, I mean, I think the key point that I would make just to emphasize what you were saying really, but is it's so important to act as an impartial expert, you know, to do your job properly, because as you've both touched on, the problem is once the court gets the whiff that you're not doing that and that you're taking a partisan approach, um, you know, to be honest, all that time you've spent 
investigating comparables, preparing a report, having meetings. It can just be an absolute waste of time because the judge starts thinking, well, I don't think I can rely on your evidence. So it has serious implications. Um, so thank you very much. That's really useful. Um, so I think maybe let's finish up with some takeaway points to bear in mind um, when people are instructing an expert. Uh, as you said, Megan, perhaps if I start with you, um, you know, ideally solicitors would be involved early doors, but that's not always the case. Um, so perhaps you could um, start us off with some takeaway points on instructing experts. Okay, so ideally you want to involve your solicitor in selecting an expert and in instructing an expert, because once they are, if they are formally instructed by a solicitor, then the solicitor will set out exactly what is required from the expert what questions the expert is asked to, to deal with, on what basis they're being instructed. And they'll also make sure that the expert is aware of their duties. And as, as we've discussed throughout uh, today, it is really, really crucial that those duties are understood by the party and very importantly, the, the expert. It's also really important to make sure that the expert you are choosing has the right expertise and qualifications and credentials. Even if you know someone who is generally an expert in the field that you need expert evidence on, you may need some very particular expertise. So if you, um, if you need valuation evidence and you know someone who, who does that, but perhaps focuses more on residential premises and you need someone um, that looks at commercial premises, then you might need to go with someone different than you had in mind. So it's really important to get the right person. And what's also very important is finding out in advance what the expert's litigation experience is, because it's uh, it's very different to prepare a report uh, than, than being on the witness stand and being cross-examined by people like Ben, which can be uh, very scary. And you have to you have to have the nerve to um, to withstand examinations like that. So it's always good to have an idea whether the expert has experience with being cross-examined and being at trial and how they hold up and getting your solicitor involved in choosing an expert and instructing an expert can really assist you with that because they'll, they'll often have experience of dealing with a number of experts and will be able to assist you. And Ben, how about your takeaway points for uh, people to bear in mind when giving expert evidence? Well, uh, first, I might just say, Megan, I'm not scary at all. I'm a teddy bear in court, and I'm sure it's delight to be cross-examined by me. But there we go. Um, no, when giving expert evidence, um, the, the most persuasive experts are those who are straightforward. And there are a few aspects to that. It means answering the question. Don't try and argue, but just explain what you think. Don't try and anticipate where a question is going because you're there just to give your views, not to try and do battle with someone that is cross-examining you. And that means also that if a point is made to you and you think, oh, hold on, actually that's fair. I've made an error here or there's something I've missed or you can't be as sure as you thought you were about something, then it's actually okay to accept that. That's you doing your best um, to assist the court. Dig in and you might be back to arguing. But of course, with all of these things, it's very difficult because there's a balance. You need to consider what is being put to you critically and carefully. 
hopefully your report will be well thought through and considered. So often there will be a good reason for why you've done what you've done, and you just need to take the time in court to explain it. It is possible, you know, rather contradicting what I just said now, it's possible to be too agreeable, um, which is a cross-examiner's dream, where you just agree that, oh, yes, actually, I've got this wrong, that wrong, I've got this wrong, and so, well, there we go. So how do you actually achieve that, that, that balance? Well, I think the answer is in preparation. You have to be really, really well prepared. Read your report really thoroughly. Go through the other side's expert's report and give a detailed critique to the legal team. And take your time when you're in cross-examine to think about the question that's being asked and answer it properly. Don't feel rushed. And just remember as well that things often aren't black and white. A cross-examiner will want you to agree with a succession of, yes, I agree with that. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Um, and not answering a question because you think something isn't black and white and it's more complicated than that can look evasive. So quite often, a question, an answer to a question, which is in the form, yes, but now let me explain why. Or yes, it's not, but it's not quite that simple. And let me tell you why. Or in the form, no, but, but let me tell you why I'm saying no, can be quite a fit. You've answered the question, but now you are taking the opportunity to give your evidence and contextualize it. That is your time to explain your thinking to the court. And ultimately, that is what giving evidence is. So I'd say those, are, those very shortly are um, the, the ways, and I know it's easier to say than to do, those are the ways that experts can um, uh, really improve their evidence in court. Well, thank you very much both for that helpful guidance on the do's and don'ts when it comes to giving expert evidence. Um, if listeners have any questions on these points, they can obviously uh, do get in touch with uh, any of us. But in the meantime, uh, thank you for joining us. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.